I was drawn by the sirens of Titan. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, do you have an audience in mind as you write? Yes, I have an audience of one in mind, and that, that is how artistic unity is achieved, I think, is by writing for one person or by painting for one person. Hello, Wonk. Get in. Get in? Who are you? Stony Stevenson, Unc. You don't recognize me. Take your shoes off, Tony. Give yourself a break. We're listening to the sirens of Titan. All science fiction, I think, is dealing with the past anyway. What has happened? Science fiction. Right now, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. You have been classified as a writer of science fiction. Is, is that fair? Do you, do you welcome it? Well, it's simply a way of storing books in a bookstore or a library. I, I complained about it. I wrote an essay uh, years ago in which I complained about the classification because critics would not take science fiction books seriously, and uh, the pay was a lot lower. I see. I'm going to ask Emily Post, how, long, how late can you wish people a happy new year? Um, okay. The generally accepted cutoff date is January 7th. Why? Because by then, everyone has already broken their resolutions and is too busy Googling how to get a refund on a gym membership to care about your belated well wishes. Okay. All right. Well, okay. there's your answer. Well, there's your answer. I don't think Emily Post brought up Googling, but. No, but. All right. So... Yeah, I didn't look up Emily Post. I just looked up, you know, how long. Welcome, Welcome ladies, ladies and gentlemen, to another, another episode, episode of Between, Between the Cover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh yeah. oh yeah like the sound of that mm-hmm. all right um so this aaron since you've kicked off the proceedings <laughs> we're here to talk about your selection since, since it was my book choice this time yeah mm-hmm. so what might that be it is the sirens of titan by kurt vonnegut jr it was either he or philip k dick are my favorite author i'm not sure which mm. you know a lot of company mm-hmm. there but uh, we should mention that Mike Hilbig has joined us. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mike. Well, the writer of Thank you, Mike. Judgment Day and other white lies mm-hmm. and uh, the one of the um, yeah bass bass player of the bass oh, player yeah yeah, yeah yeah so of, uh, yeah so yeah so um, holding down that funky low end oh it's called it's called big fan so yeah big fan. I thought so yeah. They are big fans of Big Fan. I'm just like, I can only remember the name of Big Fan. I've decided to stop masking. I was going to say Big Time. I just don't remember. Uh, I don't know. You're fine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Big Fan. Give me a little dopamine and I probably would have known. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, pretty pretty local bands. We're all in our drummers in the 50s and the guitar player both in our 40s. So, you know, we just look and play local shows and have a good time and write some good music, you know. Uh, now, do you no, get paid, or do you just play for fun? Uh, we we've gotten paid, but I mean, it's not you know, it's, it's it's not a lot of money. You're not worried yeah, about it. Not quit your day they, job. Worried for beer. 
Yeah, I think we the most we made on one gig was like a hundred bucks or something like that. So you know, it's it's better than nothing. But you know, uh, yeah, it's beer beer money for the gig. <laughs> you know, most it beats a sharp stick in the eye, as they yeah. say. No, but we've heard mm-hmm. several tracks. That really, you know, it's really good. It's like yeah. post punk, you know, uh, alternative. Just just really good yeah. rock and roll. I think it's it, you don't want to pigeonhole anybody. You know. Yeah, we well we joke around. We we say that we're. Uh, next wave or nostalgic core, so we have kind of an early '90s sound, and, uh, and and that kind of kind of goes along with a lot of it. I mean, okay. we did that the episode on the butthole surfers. I mean, that's kind of in our wheelhouse. The kind of stuff we're sort of shooting for. So yeah, so. yeah. You were covering who was in my room last night, right? Yeah, yeah. We're well. We've actually we've turned it into a a met. We haven't we haven't played it live yet. I think we well we we warmed up with part of it at a, at a show one one time, but but uh. But we 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 we're gonna do a, a medley of uh, we're gonna kind of bash Goofy's concern. He was in my room last night together and do those. Oh, sweet one song. So yeah, so yeah, can't yeah. um, wait to hear it. I like yeah. mashups. Yeah. So so yeah. So that should be fun. And uh, yeah. So talking about Kurt Vonnegut, it was interesting to revisit him because yeah. he was a, he was a writer that I loved a lot when I was you know a teenager uh, and 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 early twenties I guess and and I hadn't read anything by him in a long time so it was, it was interesting to go back and um look i've always and i've always just liked him as a as a personality i think he uh you know he he he, he said a lot about you know sort of creation and uh, encouraged people to make art and uh and to think and uh and he just seemed like a pretty genuinely like you know a lot of there's a lot of artists who where you like their work, but the person themselves is kind of a jerk or, or, or something like that. And Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut seemed to be a pretty, I mean, you know, I don't know him personally, so I never, you know, there might be some skeletons there that I don't know about, but just it, from his public face and the way he sort of gave interviews and talked to people and gave speeches and everything I've heard, you know, from stories of people interacting with him, that he seemed like a pretty genuine guy that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't making this great art and secretly a shithead <laughs> behind <laughs> closed doors. So, yeah. We kind of represented. I mean, he. I mean, uh, no more ideals. of a shithead than he represented himself to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. He kind of then he kind of represent. I mean, he kind of represented some ideals of the '60s. I mean, that's probably why a lot of his work appeals to uh, you know. Uh, the disaffected, the you know. You know, didn't the alt type persons. Yeah, well, Jerry my, Garcia my, earned my the favorite. rights to the, to the to the film. Jerry Garcia owned the rights to the. To the film of this, uh, yeah, book, he, right? he does. It's not been done. The undone, yeah. the undone. Um, Did. <laughs> his uh, my favorite quote by him was that the, he said there should have been a secretary of the future, and I and I think like, uh, and, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, him and Joseph Heller were both in, were both soldiers in World War Two and and Catch Twenty Two and uh, mm-hmm. and Slaughterhouse Five both came out of that same Dresden bombing attack or whatever, and. Uh, and they're both involved in that, and so I think it's interesting that you know, two of sort of what are what are called you know greatest sort of World War II novels came out of the same sort of you know event by two. I mean, I don't think they knew each other. Per- Maybe they met each other later in life. I don't think they knew Probably each other personally did, in the war. But yeah, but um, but I, yeah, and, and Catch Twenty Two is is a book I really loved when I was young as well. So. Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah, so. it's a book, pretty good yeah. movie too. And 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 I I was you know not aware that Sirens of Titan also has the I love Slaughterhouse Five but never read the Sirens of Titan I didn't realize the awesome. Trimalfadorians were gonna yeah go back yeah. up so that was cool yeah this is um this is actually prior to Slaughterhouse Five this yeah. was his second novel yeah 
but yeah, that it's uh, like Frank Zappa. He's got a lot of that conceptual continuity going through his work. With the, yeah, I mean, a lot of writers, Charles Amadorians, and uh, Kazak appears one more than once, and yeah, the word the name Rumford appears more than once in his works. Yeah, there's a you know William William. Now Faulkner. is Rumford with different people or the same guy, just from a different context? Different people. Okay. Um. Sometimes it's implied that they're maybe related, sometimes not. I mean, it's, I don't know, when he reuses names, I mean, I don't know about Rumford specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember he reuses it. It's it's escaping me right now, which well, book I'll, he does it in. And he spells I'll, Kazak differently. There's like a double A in one of the, there's like a three A's in Kazak in the other book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, what I thought, what I guess what, what initially struck me about it is that it's interesting to read it now. Um Mm -hmm. with sort of the new ai sort of like uh yeah. you know a lot of the, the sort of commentary about machines and technology and and uh and, and stuff that's going in here i kept imagining mm -hmm. uh kept imagining sort of the uh the malachi character is sort of like elon musk <laughs> it's like sort of yeah. you know he's running this spaceship company was, and, i pictured and, him as donald that's Trump. exactly how i pictured him yeah <laughs> so yeah, I guess I, I just drew the connection to, to I mean, yeah, you can say and Trump yeah, being a spoiled well, but, rich guy passing out in the gutter of his pool. Yeah, it was just the spaceship company, I guess. It just immediately made me think of Elon yeah. Musk and everything he's been in the news for lately has been, you know, pretty much uh true. Pretty yeah. <laughs> pretty, that, that's, that, a, that's a good blaze right by me. It's this yeah. is about the fourth or fifth time I've read the book ever. Yeah. And it's oh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. it's I mean, I think you can insert. I mean, I, I kind of cruise right by without even thinking about Elon Musk or yeah, I mean, I think or that, Bezos yeah. or um, you're, you're, you're who's the Virgin Atlantic guy? Huh? Oh, Branson. Uh, Richard, Richard Branson. Branson. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something like uh, he might get Branson more because well, if I had to pick one of the three, yeah, but yeah, but I mean, I think I think that like the I think there's something sort of inherent in that sort of you know when you have that much money. I mean, I feel like this is like you know going back to the last election, Bloomberg running in the Democratic Party, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, if you have that kind of money, somebody's always trying to get a piece of you so that they just kind of constantly, you know, beef you, you know, beef, with, beef you up, you know, and sort of talk about how awesome you are and say yes right. to everything you ask for. And, and after mm -hmm. a while, you just, you know, you can see how that could lead anybody to sort of, you know, come to believe they're the smartest person in any room they're in, whether they are or not. And, you know, it's so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I feel like sunshine blowing up their yeah, ass. Yeah. That's a person. That, that's a personality trait that probably a lot of billionaires have, you know, just because, you know, well, Aaron, why, why don't you, uh, why don't you give us a brief synopsis of the plot? You know, you don't have to go into, to, uh, as much detail as you okay. would like, obviously, but you know, um, let's see. Yeah. Uh, let me, take a drink of water before set off on this we'll try adventure. not to sidetrack you too much but we may have uh you know. so um malachi constant is um the richest man in the world in future north america i'm stealing from wikipedia here and um he he inherited his fortune from his father who he really i think only met once mm -hmm. and um his father's secret to wealth was he stayed in a hotel room across the street from one of his um, office buildings or warehouse or factory or something like that. And he always uh, would go through the Gideon's Bible in the drawer and he'd go two letters at a time from in the beginning and he would um, get the stock, one of the stock symbols for those two letters. And um, it, they always hit. 
So his, the first one he got was um, International Nitrate, and then Trowbridge Helicopter, etc. And they, you know, he always made the right decisions, buying and selling, and you know, as long as he stuck to his plan, which um, he passed on to Malachi, his son, when he was I don't know, eighteen or twenty-one or something like that. Or um, no, he didn't. He learned after his death, I think, from from the lawyer. Anyway, Malachi no, no. didn't keep the up the practice. The only person who knew was his father. It was his he father. Visited, yeah. He visited his. Okay. I thought he. he I thought he had to read salesman. about it, but maybe not. Yeah. He had no money. He used mm -hmm. his last money to gamble based on the Bible, on the yeah, stock. To market. gamble on the stock market. Yeah. Yeah. Lo and behold, he hit the jackpot. And he, hit, hit, he lived hitting. for the rest of his life in that hotel room. He bought the hotel. He stayed in that room for the rest of his life. Occasionally, yeah. there was a maid who would visit him, and that's how Malachi happened. Yeah. Once and a week, he did not uh, meet. His father until he was take yeah care of like his biological needs. I think he was twenty one. Yeah, he's twenty one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he came to the hotel. He spoke to he spoke to him that one time, and he never saw him again. I got another analogy. Uh, yeah, George Bush. Right on me. Yeah, yeah, w. yeah. <laughs> but he so yeah so he's yeah so what he in the hotel and then his father tells him also to uh, that his that it, well. His, his, uh, what was it? Oh, no, wait, maybe that was after his father died. But when, when he gets the letter, so his father dies and leaves him a letter after his luck has run out or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, he starts, the, he starts the company and he makes a ton of money and then he goes bust, uh, because he's selling cigarettes that make people go sterile. And <laughs> they're going to have a well, big 54 day party. Well, that yeah. yeah. Everything's going wrong and he's just living it up being the playboy right. party animal. Yeah, so party to last fifty six days, right? Yeah, so his company's going furniture's all floating in the pool. His company's going belly up, and he find, he gets a letter from his father that says that he should accept a strange proposition, and that's where sort of where Rumford comes in. So yeah, and, and um, Magnum Opus, right? Magnum Opus. Yeah, Magnum Opus is is his company that he builds. But um, yeah, we should I should get back onto Rumford. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. Uh, Winston Niles Rumford. He's a wealthy guy in New England with his oh, wife, my. Beatrice, who um, is the most uptight Chrissy person in the world. There's a there's a painting of her uh, as a little girl dressed in all white. And um, he said he, he says to people, doesn't it make you just want to throw her in the mud or something like that? <laughs> you get mud on that dress. Um, but anyway, he's um, he becomes a space explorer. And while he and his dog, Kazak, are in outer space, they enter a phenomenon known as a chronosynclastic infundibulum, which is defined as um, those places where all different kinds of truths fit together. And when they enter the infundibulum, they become wave phenomena, um, and they exist along a spiral stretching from the sun to the star Betelgeuse. And then when the Earth goes through their spiral, they materialize temporarily in coincidentally enough, Rumford's mansion in New England at the same, at a, at a schedulable time. It's like every 51 days or something like that. There are other places where he appears. Yeah, but not on Earth. Right, right. Yeah, as, as other planets go into the infundibulum, he appear, the, he, the, he and the dog appear there. And um, while since he's in the chronosynclastic infundibulum, he can see all of time up until his own demise. So uh, he's kind of 
tortures people and pulls strings throughout this book. Not kind of. <laughs> completely. Yeah. Completely. He's a complete ass. He is a complete ass. There really are no redeeming features to him. He even turns on his robot friend at the end. Well, what's his name? Salo? Yeah. Salo. Well, doesn't, okay, so doesn't uh, Malachi meet him at some sort of event? Um, and and well, Malachi is invited to, um, to Rumford's estate yeah. um, for his materialization. And yeah. nobody except his wife has ever seen him materialize. She's horrified by it, wants nothing to do with it, makes herself scarceful, and he appears. People line up outside and crowd around trying to get a glimpse of him and the dog, but, you know, nobody ever does. But he gets to come through this tiny door in the gate, this little Alice in Wonderland door, if you will. And um, he, he climbs up on the fountain and all of a sudden, you know, gets in there and the dog appears and Rumford appears. And he tells him that he's going to... Uh, He's going to travel to where was it? First, he's going to go to Mars. Then he's going to go to Earth. Then is it no Mars? Then Venus? Then Earth? Then Titan? Or, well, no, I mean, then Earth it was, and Titan. I think again. it was Mer It was Mercury, not Venus, right? I think, but yeah, no, it wasn't. Was it Mercury? I think it was, but I could okay, be wrong. It was Mercury, not Venus. Well, I thought it was Venus because of the he talked of the the, the rings around it. It might, it might have been. I might have misread, but I can't remember. But no, it's, it's Saturn. No, that's right. Mercury yeah. is the hottest. <laughs> Venus doesn't yeah. rotate, so it's got hot and cold. But but the point is that yeah. um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Rum, Rumford details everything that's going to happen to Malachi uh, for the remainder of the book within the first yeah. 50 pages of the book. Because probably. he's got, yeah. he's got a... Um, well, that chronos and what is it? Chronosynclastic infundibulum. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. like, it gives him a sort of knowledge that like the universe, like like that he can observe time in a way that most humans can't, right? I mean, like- yeah. And that's a that's read, a Vonnegut mechanism too that he uses over and over again. He tells yeah. you up front. <laughs> yeah. This well, and this and this are going to happen. It's um, And you, you, you'll be surprised maybe by the way they happen <laughs> and yeah. the way it comes about, but- uh, it, you know, he told you so in the first 50 pages oh yeah yeah well it's all but it's it's uh but the 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 knowledge of the source space i mean it, it aligns with i guess sort of you know theory of you know uh is it relatively i don't know the, the, but like you know theoretical physicists you know that we talk about like quantum mechanics yeah that we we observe time as linear but that time is actually sort of a component of space right so well, uh you could yeah. theoretically you are outside of some sort of human perspective. So when he's given this power, it seems that he's also given a power to sort of observe events in the future and the past simultaneous to the present and uh, where this knowledge is sort of coming from. But yeah. yeah, I, I feel like after he gets, because, okay, so he has his 56 day party where he essentially gives away all his oil wells, right? He has like That's a right. He gives a bunch of stuff away. Yeah. yeah and, he gave, he uh, gave an oil well to, away to every girl or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he just has a banger, girl at the party. Right? and and he, he, you know, magnum opus goes bankrupt, mm -hmm. and then he yep. at that point he quits. This is just an add-on. So he and mm -hmm. his is well, he was conscripted conscripted into the. I'm trying to get ahead of myself. Aaron, you know the story better than me. a lot better. He, he, yeah, <laughs> he goes. It goes to Mars, right? Yeah, Rumford yeah. talks him into going to Mars. Yeah. 
Yeah, Remember, Riker well, talks, tricks him into going to Mars. Right. Yeah, he, he tells him there's the sirens. To go. Yeah, that's the, the title of the book, The Sirens and Titans. It gives him this picture of these beautiful women on the face of Mars, these three women. There's one what one blue one, one gold one, and some white, I think. I can't remember, but yeah, um, they were them to sell cigarettes. Yeah, they yeah. were part of the cigarettes. Yeah. And so he, he sends so he goes to Mars and the next thing we know, uh we're sort of misdirected and we have this character named Unk, who we soon learn is actually Malachi, but his memory has been wiped and now he's a soldier in the Mars Mars army. Uh right. is this guy named is it Boaz or Boaz? It's B O A. I I pronounce it Boaz in my head, but Boaz. Okay, yeah. So yeah, and the the the, the Vonnegut guys they pronounce it Boaz. Okay, so, so yeah, they, they 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 disagreed on every pronunciation. It was hilarious. <laughs> so so Boaz, no way, I'm Boaz. Yeah, Boaz is, is Malachi. You're Malachi. <laughs> so so Malachi's been told to kill this uh this this other person in the army and yeah, Stony. Uh, yeah, Stonerson or something. Like that. Yeah, and he, he doesn't. Uh, he, yeah, Stone so he just follows the instruction like a good Stevenson. soldier, and then he has this sort of, you know, you know, sort of mental health break. They take him to a clinic and wipe his wipe his brain. They have these antennas installed in their brains in the Mars Army, and we find find out that Boaz is a commander and he can force people to do things, but he does not have one of the antenna in his head. And no, uh, but he has a remote control to make people do. Yeah, yeah, he has a remote but control. But to clarify that, what it is is the way it's set up, the actual commanders of the army are lower ranked officially. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. Boaz is either a corporal or a private. Mm -hmm. But the but he controls the sergeants, the captains, the lieutenants, the generals. Yeah. Yep. So and we sort of we sort of the only one. There's one per unit. Yeah, we, we learned that Rumford is sort of the, the main guy on Mars and is is yeah. instructing this whole army sort he's, of he's engineering this ill-fated yeah. attack on earth yeah i think Bonnie calls it the commander of all things martian yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so and that 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 what the martians are there doing is training for what a suicide mission um they're going to attack earth because you know essentially when earth is under attack it'll bring all the people together so that they'll stop fighting with each other and fight right. the martians and but so, this was my favorite part of the novel, though, when when um, when Unc had to go to his son and to Beatrice and try to convince them to uh, basically go AWOL with him from the mm. Martian army. He can be like, you're nobody to me. Yeah, he broke free of this antenna and he was able in a very painful uh, way to uh, regain his uh, autonomy. Well, yeah. yeah. We, and, we and should mention too that in in the memento style, he keeps leaving. Yeah, I was a just diary about to, say to himself. That. And, I was just about yeah. to say that it was. Yeah, it reminded me of memento. He 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 learns that his memory is being wiped. So clean. he keeps he he fills his memory back up a little bit with what he's written down. But yeah, that's and, it. He, and he keeps referencing this best friend who it turns out is the guy he was ordered to kill. Um, yeah. And it's 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 not sort of said in the novel. I, I think you could read it either way. That either. Uh, either that was an invention of character or that like he actually was friends with this guy and had his memory wiped clean of it. But we don't really get a lot of that other than in that letter. Well, yeah. okay, From letter... what I gather, he, they were best, they were best buddies. Yeah. And um, yeah, he was uh, Stony antenna left... controlled into choking him while yeah. he was Stony... chained to a yeah. pole or something. Stony yeah. left clues to find the journals. 
Oh yeah, that's right. And yeah. then yeah, yeah. and Stoney was Stoney was sentenced to death because he gave him alcohol, and that was like a, a that's a right. He put to death by by giving and him. Uh, and and he was wiped, and he came back, and the day he came back after being wiped, he was forced to you know kill Stoney. So, Right, to kill Stoney. And then after that, he found like the letter or note from Stoney telling him where to look for the journals. And yeah. that's where, and he didn't know who he killed. They didn't tell him. They just yeah. told him, you have to kill this guy. Yeah, so, he, he doesn't actually find that out until the last. Right, the very end. And, and he doesn't and really I, have free will at that point. And I, and I, I've kind of felt like this is, um, this is just like a revenge fantasy. In a lot of ways. Well, okay, because uh -huh. the main pop plot point is that um, Malachi alleged, uh, uh, you know, actually Roomford strongly suggested that that he had raped Beatrice. No, that he cheated with Beatrice. So at the beginning, yeah. he predicted like, that they would. He predicted that they would cheat with each other, child. but then he convinced him to rape her. But it's well, they they kind of they yeah. But and and that's on Malachi for yeah. doing it. Okay, mm -hmm. peer pressure. But because when they're on the ship, but she was yeah, basically Rumford's men like forced or goaded him into doing it. Yeah, yeah. and she uh, gave she birth then to Kronos. Uh, Chrono yeah. or Kronos? Does he have an S? Kronos. S. Yeah, I think it's Kronos. He does have an yeah. S. <clears throat> yeah. He grew up to he grows up to be a German bat ball yeah. superstar in Mars. Not right. grows up, but uh, yeah, as, as a child, is a, yeah. he's about twelve or eight or yeah, he's, eight he's a German bat ball prodigy. Everybody, yeah, everybody's yeah. All, all wondrous about you know. Yeah, and he's kind of his, his abilities, of and he has his good luck piece, this little chunk of metal that he kisses all the time. Right, yeah, yeah. And, that becomes um, very important that, later, right? Yeah, that becomes important that I, later, and um, mm -hmm. I think that was prophesized by Rumford. Mm -hmm. That it was that that this was important in yeah. true Vonnegut fashion, saying, "Hey, looky here, this is going to be important." Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. right. Not hiding anything <laughs> from you. Yeah. yeah, we listened to the yeah. Kurt Vonnegut guys, and you know, we're not trying to rip mm -hmm. them off, but they were, they made some very good observations. Yeah. They're big fans. We enjoyed that. Uh, yeah, I, I recommended yeah. that you guys check that out, and shout out to them if they're out there. Yeah, right. thanks, hey thanks for existing. That was a lot yes, of fun. Thank you. Yep. I went back and listened to all, I read all the Vonnegut's again after that, those podcasts came out and then listened to the pods afterward. That's been several years now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, like from 2016, 2017. Philip Way didn't catch up. this, but, mm -hmm. uh, the Beatrice and Rumford had been married for six years and she hadn't ever, she was a virgin. So yeah. when, Malachi Not raped her. She was she's a, virgin, a virgin, but I, he was sterile. Okay, but probably because of the cigarettes. So he's got two reasons. <laughs> I don't mean Malachi. I mean hate Rumford. Malachi. Rumford. Right. Mm -hmm. He's got two reasons. Rumford has two reasons to hate Malachi. He's been sterilized by the cigarettes, and his wife won't give it up to him. But from what he understands, she gave it up. She gives it up to Malachi. Which she does not. He no. sets up the rape. Right. Yeah. So the whole revenge fantasy is like this big cyclic thing. Yeah. You know? I would yeah. kind of talk about this today. We were talking about what was the movie uh Indecent Proposal. Mm -hmm. That yeah. it's not exactly the same, but it had the same kind of 
it's also um, interesting because uh, Rumford is, it's one of those things, right? He says he can, uh, it says he can see the future and he knows what's going to happen, but then he also, uh, because he's wealthy and because he's wealthy and he's been granted this ability, uh, he's actually like manifesting all the stuff that he says is going to happen. So he's like making sure it's going to happen and orchestrating everything. Yeah, he's the, the puppet team. master. So, so he's, he's not like, he's not like a, a seer in the same way that somebody like, you know, I mean, not that, not that Nostradamus necessarily was, but like that somebody yeah, like Nostradamus to is be. considered to be, yeah, he's, he's not like seeing events in the future and having no impact on them. He's seeing events and then like, you know, Imagining right. them and then bringing them into being, you know, so he's got agency in that, or you know, well, at least it, it seems that he does until the very end of the novel. So we can we can get there when we, <laughs> we get we'll there. Get so there, right? yeah, we'll yeah. I like that. Okay, so one more point I want to make about Mars because they're about to leave Mars, right? I like the way the whole thing about the goofballs and the yeah. oxygen. You had the uh, and the fact that Beatrice was an educator and she taught this Schliemann bre uh, breathing technique. That yeah. allowed you to, you know, exist in the Martian atmosphere. You ingest these goofballs and it feeds your brain yeah. oxygen. Yeah, you, you don't need to breathe yeah. anymore when you. Yeah, it gives it yeah. to you through your lower, balls. through your lower intestine instead of your lungs. Right. That, that, mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting detail. That that gives color to the story and everything because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you got to suspend disbelief for a lot of what you're reading anyway. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, how the hell are you, are they breathing in the Martian atmosphere? If that's possible, then why don't you? Know. Yeah. Anyway. Because they're on goofballs. I, I like the name goofballs, too. Yeah. <laughs> I just like saying goofballs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then they, so then they, so he leaves the Martian army and then, you know, Rumford sets off his plan to attack Earth and, uh, and, and most of the Martian army, with the exception of, you know, a few hundred people, dies in this attack on Earth, but but Rumford has it worked out so that Beatrice and Kronos arrive on a separate ship with just women and children and that um and that uh Malachi or uh, Unk, right, Unk and Boaz go to this is when they go to Mercury. Instead of Earth, they're the only ship that goes to a different place and they hang out on Mercury for twelve years, uh, while Beatrice yeah, and Kronos get sort of peacefully let off the ship and allowed to establish a sort of life on no on, they uh, end up uh uh they end up, on oh yeah they, they yeah that's right they, they end up trapped with the what's it the, the a native the, tribe the gumbo, in south america gumbo tribe yeah and they and they become trained by the by the tribe that's right I forgot well initially they're tortured yeah yeah mm -hmm. and until they yeah. join the tribe yeah and so yeah, they're, they're they're captured by the tribe or whatever mm -hmm. and on what planet are they at mercury at this point no, no, no. Was... they're on Earth. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I mean, oh, Boaz Uncle, and, Uncle Boaz and, and yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's Mercury, Mercury. in there. And the only other thing on Mercury are these creatures called harmoniums. Who, yeah. Who? What? They only say two things. It's, it's greetings and something else. But I can't. They, remember. they feed on sound vibrations. Yeah. And yeah. um, they, they love them so much that they'll, they'll absorb so much sound vibration that it kills them if, if you let them. So. Yeah. And Boaz really likes these harmoniums, and uh, Unk does not, and so they sort of have a falling out. Uh, and and Boaz sort of has this personality where he's like, you know, the truth doesn't really matter. It's just let's just go along to get along and do what makes us happy. Mm -hmm. And Unk sort of is is more cynical and thinks like, what can go wrong will go wrong, and we should be on a mission to figure out how to get the hell out of here. And and, mm -hmm. uh, and plus, he's, he's being uh, goaded on by. 
the, the harmoniums are, uh, they reflect light that's either Rumford. yellow or aquamarine. And yes. Rumford's been putting up messages with harmoniums on the wall, spelling out messy. Yeah. You can figure it out, monk. It's an, unk. It's an IQ yeah. test. And eventually yeah. they tell him, turn the spaceship upside down. And the spaceship leads itself right out of the... Because that's yeah. when Rumford, you know, wants him to leave. Yeah, and Boaz decides to stay behind on Mercury and hang he out. Stays back with his harmony, 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 harmonia. They all, yeah, they all. Yeah, he's him. created like a, a orchestra. Yeah, he's playing. Yeah. He's playing music for the harmoniums, yeah, and they all just line up. To... Yeah, he's figured out how to allow them to hear the sound without hurting themselves, and so he's mm -hmm. uh, he keeps them at a hundred yards distance from the the speakers. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, and so when they, I guess when, when when they get back to Earth, uh, so when they get back, when, when he when Unk comes back to Earth on the spaceship alone, uh, there's he learns that Rumford has you know constructed this whole religion around this mysterious space messenger who's supposed to the come Church back of God of the un Earth. utterly indifferent. Yeah, <laughs> which is like yeah. Everybody's ever, looking for the wanderer. Have y'all ever seen that the Church of the Sub Genius in the early days? Of yeah. The, yeah, yeah, kind of reminded yeah, Bob Dobbs. Yeah, Bob, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. So it's a, it's a religion, but it's, uh, but they believe that you know God doesn't really care. There's you know, luck is really all that determines what your status is okay. in the universe, and that you know, and the, you and the symbol of everything that's wrong with the universe is Malachi, is Malachi and B. That's <laughs> yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, because he says they're they're opposite ends of excess. You have Malachi, who's the super lucky guy who lives, you know, just drinking and doing drugs, and B is you know, because she's so ex excessive in her purity. Uh, and, and he said, people aren't actually like that. And these are these two polar extremes. And so, uh, and so, yeah, so they, he orchestrates this big, you know, coming home event and sort of chastises them in public. And then they take the spaceship and go to him, him and, or, uh, yeah, Unk and B and, and Kronos take the spaceship, Malachi, and, and they head off for, for, uh, for Titan finally uh, to sort of, you know, yeah and, and, and yeah they're like forced space. onto this spaceship right and yeah it's like a they're like being run out of town like a, on a rail tunnel of <laughs> yeah. people to this and i you know and there's a mob forcing them up the ladder, ladder to the rocket yeah. yeah and when they get when they get to titan they meet salo who is uh a, he's where the trimalfadorians come in he's a trimalfadorian which uh are creatures that are they are uh not birthed through reproduction but assembled and manufactured like a computer and we find yeah. out that they've they've been, but they're the, sentient with souls. Yeah, and all the all the all the you know all the great monuments on Earth. It turns out so Salo has been shipwrecked on the planet Titan, which is a moon of or not planet. It's a moon of Saturn, and he's trying to get back home. And we yeah. find out that you know like the Great Wall of China and Stonehenge and all these sort of you and know the but Earth are messages to Salo and it's pretty funny because they're things like you know your part will arrive soon and like uh, <laughs> and things like that and so uh and and uh and Salo thinks that him and Rumford are friends but then when Rumford comes back to to Titan in anticipation of Malachi and be arriving there uh uh he he sort of tells Salo he's not happy with him and he he, he has learned that the Trimalfadorians have this sort of hypnotic influence on earthlings and that they are sort of channeling that influence through space and, uh, and causing humans to do a lot of the things that they do. And like that, build the great wall of China. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. And then, uh, 
And it turns out that they have been using Rumford in their plan uh, to to get their message uh, to Earth. And uh, and he's not very happy about that because all of a sudden, you know, as we said earlier, he said he's like the he character thought he was the boss. with agency. He thought he was pulling all the strings. And as it turns out, he's not. So he's yeah. sort of, you know, you know, sort of a cost salo and he keeps calling him a machine in like this derogatory sort of way, implying that he doesn't have a soul, that sort of thing. And uh, and so Salo is pretty broken up about it. And when when uh, Beatrice and Malachi and Kronos get to Titan, uh, he uh, he's he's he comes to greet them, and and they're not sure who he is, so they try to attack him. And uh, and and then the, then they then what 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 happens, right? So they try to attack him, and then Rumford, uh, uh, and then they go they go meet Rumford, and and who who will not see Salo, and they talk to him, and 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 learn sort of you know. Uh, about this plan by the Trimalfadorians to exert this influence and how uh, Rumford is now planning to just go off and, and it's essentially die, but he's not actually dying because he exists outside of time, but he's not going to continue to materialize, I suppose. Yeah, uh, he, so. He materializes was, elsewhere. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. And he's separated from his dog. Yeah. Right. The dog oh, was right there at the end. When he dropped the leash... For, uh, was it Karak or Kar something? Kazak, yeah. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting. The AI, it was like the sophistication of the AI there was pretty, you know, you pretty. Mean Salo? Yeah, Salo. Yeah. You know, like it had trained itself to be more compassionate and more human, basically. It was the nicest character in the Rumford. book. Rumford. Yeah. Except for and baby Stoney, whom we don't know. To the point where it committed suicide, in the essence. Right? Yeah, yeah the he disassembled himself. He yeah, found out that his he found out that this important message he was carrying was a single dot that means yeah. greetings and and trout trout yeah and the and the and and Chronos's uh, little you know lucky charm turns out to be the missing part for his uh, spaceship so yeah uh, so yeah so he takes himself apart Rumford dies and then sort of you know uh, uh, Malachi and B and Chronos are all stranded on Titan together and. Uh, and and Kronos decides to go live among this pack of what were they? I forget what they were called. Um, but they're like, some kind of, they were birds. Something, something bluebirds, yeah. Yeah, bluebird species. Titanian in, blue, titanium yeah, bluebirds. And, I think. and once once a year, he comes home for his mother's birthday and acts like a human again, and and then sort of <laughs> insults her and takes off. And she's really sort of aggrieved by this. So every time that happens, she calls Malachi over to comfort her and make her feel better. And turns out that they they do he eventually cleans her cave then for her. Yeah, they do eventually fall in love, but Malachi claims it's only, you know, the last year of their lives when the and she lived to be seventy four, I think. So the last chapter of the novel covers, you know. Yeah. The epilogue. 50, Fifty years or so in about five pages. Yeah. Uh, but uh but you well, know, so, you know. Yeah, it's just that's, wrapping that's up. That's also typical Vonnegut. Once the yeah. once the park gets delivered. Yeah. Yeah, the rest no, no. Of it's once, once the park gets delivered, Salo um, puts Malachi back in the saucer and takes him down to Earth and drops him in Indianapolis yeah. at a bus stop and yeah. uh, hypnotizes him, controlling him again <laughs> to have happy thoughts and leaves him to freeze to death on a bus stop. Right. Yeah, Vonnegut's from Indianapolis, right? Yeah, and, his, and, his, yeah, and yeah. His, his fantasy was that he met his best friend and he was going to paradise. Yeah, he's, he's meeting Stony to meet B as well. So, um, yeah, okay. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, short a lot there on such a short book, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like you're you're yeah. all over the, uh, the you know the 
different dimensions, different <laughs> times. Uh, but um, I, I was struck by it. To me, it it, it kind of came down to a human story, though. You know, it like I was I alluded to this uh, this uh, the movie indecent proposal you know it wasn't the same story or anything but i felt like the dynamic was kind of the same and that you know it, it wasn't as elemental as just the a relationship between a man and a woman and, or whatever but it's more of a power struggle and it was more of a commentary on um you know social uh issues of the time and the perception of the wealth the wealthy actually you know kind of uh running you know everything well, what you've got is two basically rich guys yeah okay uh one of whom had event who after they meet fritters away his fortune yes okay and ends up going to you know ends up getting tricked by rumford but for me there's kind of a manifest destiny function here because and and it's a plot device used in quite a few stories but basically if yeah, they're all they, they're all if, controlled by things outside of their if rumford well no things outside their control rumford manifested the destiny he was mad about well except for the sterilization but since his wife wasn't putting out what's you know but he manifested the relationship between his wife and malachi by getting revenge against them if he hadn't tricked Rum, tricked Malachi and kidnapped Beatrice and put her on this ship. And then, then, then had his people none of it would have happened and the whole book doesn't happen. But yeah. now I realize I actually did not, I would have had to read it again to get the, 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 the alien part of the story. I did yeah. not get that because I was so mad at Rumford for being uh, basically one of the biggest serial killers in history, except for Hitler, and yeah. for tricking all these people. Yeah, he killed all those Martians. Yeah, yeah. for, Martian for doing brain surgery on people and all just to get revenge against his wife for yeah. having a kid with someone else. And yeah. that's what the book, that's what I saw Allegedly to bring book. the earth together. Right. Don't, they, don't they say at one point in the novel too, there's, there's a... Some kind of to be a commander in the Martian army, you have to like uh, be somehow. Was it was that was that in that book or was that something else I was reading? I can't remember. Something about you know you have to be able to like you know command a lot of people and be willing to let them die or something like that or some kind of explicit thing. It's uh, something to that effect. Could have been, but yeah, maybe. Uh, but I mean, okay. The yeah. only thing that's an outlier for me then is why did Boaz attach himself to Unk like he did? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's the soldier. I mean, I think that's the soldier thing, right? I mean, like he was, he was not programmed the same way as the other ones. But there's like this kind of like, you know, you follow orders and you do what you're told and you don't question it. And, and was uh, he told to go with Unk on the other ship, or did he just go? I thought he just well, they, went. They were buddies, right? So they were like, there's the army used some kind well, of. Well, I don't think Unk really liked him. No, but he he never trusted Boaz. No. And, but I mean, I and mean, not, they told him not to trust Boaz. Don't not, he? Not I buddies think like term. not buddies like friends. The army used like a buddy system, so you had a buddy oh, to yeah. like stick by at all oh, times. Oh, okay. So that, he was assigned one too. Yeah, but I think, uh, but I think, yeah, I think that uh, what was interesting for me about the kind of uh, uh, 
Well, it's like, you know, I mean, I think this is some water, hun. Uh -huh. What Vodigan is cluing into, I mean, this is, you know, the problem with, you know, giving people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, you know, huge sums of money. I mean, you know, Mark Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook has, um, it's not a widely reported story in America, but it's a, it's a real thing that happened. There was a genocide in Myanmar that was in part instigated by Facebook private groups and Facebook algorithms sort of, you know. Oh, wow fanning uh fanning like you know incendiary rhetoric at you know so they got these two factions in both in the words of jay peterman it'll always be burma so, to me yeah similar to how they you know polarized america but in this case it's these factions that have weapons and start a you know a war against each other but you know like Crazy. take the far left far right feed them the most extreme messages that's possible you know and then you know sort of flame up tensions and start this war and, and so um they did this in myanmar and uh and uh and and so you know and and i think elon musk right there's like a lot of you know uh you know his, his family made yeah. money in in lithium mines in south america which are you know extremely exploitative and people die young in them all i mean there's you know when you give one person that kind of power and they can make decisions like you know donald trump right some blood diamond money there yeah, too you know donald donald trump's president when COVID hits and you know not that i mean i don't know how well the american system would have held up for COVID under any circumstances, but certainly it wouldn't help anybody having a guy like that in charge. And you give somebody all that yeah. power, and then any decision they make, then I'd like to think it's going to be gone by Easter. Yeah, everybody else gets involved in that, right? Whether they want to be or not. And so I think that this book is really <clears throat> what I think like seventeen people died from that chlorochrome. Yeah, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, and yeah, and I think that like the. Um, uh, and I and I and I think this book is interesting because I don't know if there's a likable character in the whole. In that's the whole a good point. That's, we were that's, talking about that today. That's, that's also typical of Vonnegut. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a real sympathetic yeah. character. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's you know you have yeah you have these wealthy guys squaring off and 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 everybody else is caught in the crossfire and this you know interplanetary war is the is the result of that. But then there's also you know within that right this you know all these questions about free will and do even these rich guys have mm -hmm. free will, right? And some, in, in some sense, they're responding to the systems that are shaping them as well. And, and I think, um, and I think that's it. I mean, I've always, I'm always fascinated by that question. I, I do a lot of that kind of playing around in my own work. Um, uh, and, and, you know, obviously yeah. I said earlier that I read a lot of Vonnegut when I was younger. I mean, he uh, was I, one I of the, I mentioned when we had, when we had you on for your book that uh, yeah. the stories were very, you know, they yeah, reminded me of Vonnegut. He does definitely. I do a lot of the same. Like he does the, you know, the, the playing around with Genesis and uh, and there's, you know, the yeah. the uh, the whale uh, is the name oh, of yeah. the space that they fly. And there's Jonah. There's a character his named name Jonah. His name was his alias was Jonah. Yeah, so it's like Jonah and the whale, and it has a sort of uh, uh, allegorical sort of, you know, that the whole book actually has a sort of allegorical, you know. Mm -hmm. kind of threads to the job if i had had more time i would have read the jonas reread the jonas story to see if i could find any more easter eggs in it but i but i didn't but um but in any case you know I, I do a lot of playing around with that and i think uh he's doing that a lot i mean like the, the, all the cave sort of uh references on mars i feel like sort of harken back to plato's allegory of the cave yeah i'm not sure if y'all are familiar with that but um mm -hmm. Plato has this, uh, I'll just sort of say it for, so Plato has this allegory of the cave where there's these characters chained up in a cave, these guys chained up in a cave and there's a fire behind them. And there's these, you know, uh, make there's people making, or there's some kind of power, more powerful thing making, you know, 
stick figures and shadows on the walls that kind of show what the, the people look like. And, uh, and so everybody thinks that, that everybody looks like shadows on the wall and they eventually break out of the cave and they go out to the daylight and they're shocked by how different everything is out in the daylight than what this mm. wall yeah. on the cave that had previously been their reality. Uh, and of, sort course, of, like, of course, we knew that story, but for the listeners. Yeah, they- yeah, 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 yeah. I was just sort of, <laughs> I think, I think what Vonnegut's doing is a similar I thing. Did. Like all these, all these people are acting in certain way. I mean, uh, Rumford thinks he's acting out this revenge fantasy, but he's actually serving the purpose of delivering this message for the tribe Malfadorians. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and the tribe Malfadorians are these beings who believe that all lives should have purpose. Right. Um, and, and, and Vonnegut sort of seems to. They, they manipulated human history so that humans would evolve and create a civilization that would create the replacement part for Salo's flying saucer. Yeah. And, and at one point in the book, and I think this is really sort of the mission statement of the, the book, or if I can find anything like the authorial intent, intent in the book is this section where he's detailing, you know, who the Trimalfadorians are and how they came to believe in this purpose. And then, you know, as things evolved, they realized that, you know, they could invent machines to fulfill those purposes. And then eventually the machines mm-hmm. fulfill those purposes perfectly. And then the people don't have any purpose in their lives and they decide to start fighting each other. Um, right. And I, and that's the, and that's the part that I think is, um, and, I mean, it has a sort of, you know, sort of existentialist. And that was also big in the time Vonnegut was writing a sort of existentialist sort of philosophical bent to it. It was just like mm-hmm. Camus and Sartre. And they sort of believed that life, life is probably meaningless, but you know, we're going to invent a meaning anyways. So, you know, I think Camus said famously, you, you have a choice when you wake up every morning, either to have your coffee or commit suicide. Right. And like, if you have your coffee, you might as well try to make the best of your day. Right. So, um, and so it's about this idea of like, yeah, things might be meaningless, but you know, go ahead and forge on anyways and, and do your best. Right. And, and I think it more clear than the church of God, the utterly indifferent. Yeah. There's sort of a radical freedom in that. Right. That if you give up on, trying to find some higher purpose that you then find a purpose paradoxically, right. Um, in, in, in just doing what you want to do in free in, in the freedom of your being. Right. Um, and I, and I think that, so I think in that, in that section of the book, he's talking about purpose and, and these, these creatures and, and their sort of quest. But I, I keep thinking about that machine part of it because the time Vonnegut was writing, I think he's very much responding, you know, the, the, the world war one and world war two, um, which 59 was it yeah are these are these you know um to the world right are these like demonstrations of just like how far human ingenuity and technology can can serve you and just destroying things right all of europe was completely destroyed by world war ii and 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 first novel player piano is even yeah more on the nose with that even in the title yeah, and we drop two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of it, right? And you just kind of you get this sense that, like, um, you know, I mean, I don't think there was ever a period in history where war was necessarily a, you know, <laughs> a thing you wanted to be involved in. But like, you know, in ancient Greece on the battlefield, there, you know, we're talking war, about you know thirty four thousand people hitting each other with clubs, right? And that can be pretty yeah, dangerous spears. and cause a lot of death as well. But it's not quite the same thing as taking a machine gun and just, you know cutting people down mowing down 100 people at a time you know and so uh and so i think that this you know this idea of technology and then and then then what i think is really interesting about it is sort of reading it now you get a sense of because this novel to me seems it was written in 1959 it seems more contemporary than that in a lot of ways um you you still find some things i think i think some of the things he says about about misogynistic attitudes 
Yeah, yeah. we're misogynistic. They say had a real problem with that. Yeah, why do you insist on making me read misogynist assholes? It was 1959. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And there was a, and I think some of the treatment of he, the. He came out of that a little bit, but um, he never yeah. really got good at writing full, fl fully fleshed out female characters. Yeah, He's, I think well, he really he really but, writes dudes. I thought the, the science fiction was really elegant, though. You know, like the by creating yeah. the chronos and classic infandibulum, you know, and then making you understand what it was. And you know, that was that wasn't clumsy for 1959. But, I thought it was, you I kept, know, impressive. Kept thinking about the machine, he said the machine to determine all purpose, and I and I keep thinking about that in the context of like AI and algorithms, and uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of really. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people focus on AI in terms of, uh, in terms of, um, a lot of people talk about AI in terms of like it's, uh, you know, plagiarizing artists and writers, and that's and that is a use that's being used that's being fought against in that. But but they're also using AI in the military, and so like one of the mm -hmm. big things that's driving this Israel-Palestine conflict is Israel is using an algorithm called the Gospel actually to generate targets uh, for what they think are terrorists, right? Not no trial, no due process, just sort of carpet bombing the Gaza Strip, right? And so, um, and yeah, and so whereas like they're completely innocent, yeah. And so there's a there's a and so there's this, but but there's an AI algorithm. And people sort of assume these machines to have this sort of you know objective quality, but the machines. I read a book a few years ago called the um, Algorithms of Oppression that was about sort of how when people construct algorithms, they construct them with their own biases sort of built in. So things like they have algorithms to determine if you're eligible for parole or probation. And they find the algorithms just like a parole board are more likely to give parole to a white prisoner than a black prisoner or like, um, or like Google search engines, things like that have these sort of racist, sexist sort of, you know, attitudes built into them because they're right. programmed by people that have those attitudes. Right. And so, um, so assuming that a machine has this objective sort of just pure computational sort of ability, and then it doesn't, so like confusing it with the prejudice and then and then the yeah. ai is going to take it and then it's going to train it it's going to you know probably it, it's probably not going to deviate that from that entirely if it's been yeah. programmed and i kept thinking about it build on that. in the context of some of the stuff he's talking about in this book i think it's really interesting i think that's the part of it that feels pretty contemporary to me is that you know in a lot of ways we haven't we're still having the same you know, like, like the way that technology revolutionized the world. I mean, human beings have been around for, you know, and there's varying estimates about it, but give or take a few hundred, a couple hundred thousand, few hundred thousand years, the earliest apes that sort of resembled humans begin to, to show up, right? And and in 200 world years, 200 years, roughly, give or take, since the Industrial Revolution really got going, uh, we've completely changed the way that people exist in the in the world, right? <laughs> and and, uh, and artificial... Yeah, even changed uh, brain patterns. Yeah, I think Vonnegut's thinking of, Vonnegut's thinking about it in the context of these world wars that have just happened that have like the technology has been used to immensely destroy human life. But I think now it's, you know, uh, even more pronounced and even some more interesting ways and think about smartphones and algorithms and all these different kinds of technologies that were sort of, you know, wedded to for better and for worse. Uh and how they sort of, you know, I mean, how does your phone influence your your free will, right? It's a machine designed to sort of cause you right. to keep checking it because it's giving you dopamine 
it's all it's, the, yeah, it's an extension it's, of your brain you know it's like you don't well, and, uh, you um, don't check uh, the recesses yeah. of your mind for an answer so much anymore you depend just as much yeah, on you much can't find anything there. in there anyway yeah and so well, and I'm, moving around we're all talking about the things that we see on social media but all those things are constructed for us by algorithm i mean i think that plays in a lot to sort of you know in this novel nobody's doing anything but I, based but I on also, actually feel oh, like sorry. doing they're, they're sort of just doing you know in mars they're doing what they've been programmed yeah. to do trifalidorian trimalfadorians yeah trimalfadorian okay here's my thing the trimalfadorian trimalfadorian <laughs> okay and and ai right is the only decent character in the book Salo, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's the, he, Salo, he is and, the, he is the and one. And even Salo's character. people are manipulative assholes. Yeah, well, <laughs> they created humanity so they could get that metal piece. Well, I think you know that's the that's the that's the question with hierarchy, right? And I think that that's you know, um, you know, I mean, there's varying different political camps of how you go about making that better, right? But there's a lot of people say you know like hierarchy itself is kind of the problem right that like anytime you're giving you know this is why democracy is favorable to kings right because you know the more inputs you can have on decision making you know the more likely you are to not like you know you're not gonna and even that's not yeah and even that's not perfect right but um but it's well, how, much, how much uh how much um compute was in this when you really think about it you had the whale you had salo but it was more science. It was more science than human engineering. You know, this book. Yeah. Was more I mean, I, oh, that's another one of those questions that's interesting. I mean, it ties into what Vonnegut's talking about with free will. I often think about this with science fiction. Um, a lot of times we'll go back and read old science fiction and then we'll see that they predicted forms of technology that we have in the world now. Right. And then say, wow, that guy was really ahead of his time. Right. But but there's also, you know, tech developers reading those science fictions and like, getting really into inventing shit and you're going like, I want something like it that's in that book that I read when I was a kid that I really liked, you know? And so, well, you know, okay. our, our imitating life question, like what- I've got a, a perfect Elon example Musk again, creating the uh, Neuralink. Of yeah. life imitating art. Because yeah. um, the Navy had those one helmets for under the ocean and you just, it was straight ahead, okay? And- in the abyss, they wanted you to be able to see the people's faces, to really recognize the, the actor or the character. So what they did was they created these helmets that were like glass on at least three sides. The Navy saw that and said, oh, yeah, I want that. And they did it. So now the SEALs have helmets so that they can actually see yeah. as opposed to just forward. How many things that were mm -hmm. were introduced on Star Trek, <laughs> you know, that are yeah. things now that have been, uh, you know, well, shown in up a and... sense, tricorders and uh, their their communicators. Mm -hmm. Okay, the phaser is a laser. Right. Okay, kind of obvious well, there. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, their but communication device where they would stuns, flip though. them up. That's a cell phone, and yeah. then um, the tricorder uh, is a. a I, I I don't know what's the correlation to a tricorder. Do you guys think? Because the tricorder is a thing where they scan you. Yeah, I don't think we have anything that just scans your whole Not body yet. like that and tells Not exactly yet. what's wrong. But 
but we yes. kind of have itty you know, bitty. Um, that'd be a question for Doctor. Yeah, itty bitty cat scan. scan. Really, and, he, and and Vonnegut says at one point in the book, he says, uh, you know, he just he says the purpose, you know, the purpose of life is to to love as many people as you can. Yeah, it's like the that's like the conclusion, can. right? And I think that's you know, I think that's what he you know, he's like we're in a world where we're you know. We're unsure what to do. We have all these options. It's hard to even know what you write. I mean, when you're one person on a planet of billions in a you know vastly uh, in a vast universe that's also expanding, right? That you know you're sort of you know it's impossible to to know really what's right. But but you can do your best to like love others and enjoy in that love. And I, I think that that's a message that I mean I think a lot of artists have made that message. I think he does it in an interesting uh, way here. But I also think that that free will question is. Uh, I mean, it's the thing that I think about. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, at least at least for for me, right? This is why I sort of prefer sort of politics that are that are more geared at sort of a collective this sort of mind frame than an individualistic one. Just because I think that, like, uh, is this a bad book? I mean, I want more agency. They have more agency as groups than they do as individuals, right? And and I think uh, I what I often think about free will arguments. My dad had uh, glioblastoma. He died of brain cancer about three years ago oh yeah but he's like you watch when somebody's brain cells get shifted around that you know they start acting weird and uh he did weird stuff like he would uh he would go to the bathroom and he would dry his hands and then wash them and then use the bathroom he'd do it in the wrong order and he would realize he was doing it in the wrong order but he couldn't force himself to you know Fix it. Oh, do it in the right it. order and and you, and you think about that in the context of free will like i mean the salo the the, the trim alpha dorian right he's uh He's constructed, but he has a soul, right? I mean, like human beings, are, you know, we, we come through through biological reproduction, but, you know, we are in many ways a biological machine, right? And if all the parts are not working in unison or in harmony with each other, then things start going wrong, right? We don't really have, <clears throat> we have some control over what we choose to pay attention to, uh, what we what we think about at certain times. We don't always have control over that, right? But in certain times we can exercise intention over our actions, but a lot of times we're just walking around reacting to what's going on in the world. And and then we, you know, then there's all sorts of things that are happening that we have absolutely like COVID. We had no control over and then all of a sudden we're forced into our, our homes, uh, many of us against our will for, you know, a couple of years or whatever, you know, and so. I'm kind uh, of grateful, actually. Yeah, I'm yeah. Saying, but. I get to work from home still. Yeah, and there were there were, go back. There were yeah. good changes that came out of that too. But I mean, it's just the, the, the idea that we we don't have as much power as we tend to think. I mean, it's certainly not in the, the Christian. I mean, he he calls out sort of the Christian sort of ideology here. I mean, he so it, he's got a rabid like fan base. Like we went and saw um, Lewis Black. Lewis yeah. Black is uh, on the board of directors of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum in Chicago. Uh, um, in Chicago or Indianapolis? Probably Chicago. in Indianapolis. Okay. Chicago. He said, he said Chicago. it was Chicago. But, you know, and uh, I it was, yeah. taught in, you know, Lee Slaughterhouse-Five was in, in my school. And, um, you know, we talked about Jerry Garcia purchasing the movie rights to this uh, book at, at one point. Um, is it a banned book? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. No. But I mean, it's definitely. I don't think it's as. Uh, I don't think uh, most Christian women are bothering to read it. So. Yeah, well, I'll say it's not as. It's not his most. Um, it's not his most no, popular. No. I mean, he's probably known for yeah. Slaughterhouse Five and, and Breakfast yeah. and Is and is Slaughterhouse Five? It, it gained popularity after Slaughterhouse Five. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I think I think the thing about Vonnegut that resonates with people, or at least what resonated resonates with me and, and or resonated me with a lot when I was younger. Like I said, I hadn't read, read him in a long time. Although I did I did very much enjoy this book. Um I think the thing that he deals with a lot of big complex ideas and he um he's in the wheelhouse of, you know, what's what's called the sort of postmodern movement in fiction, which is when fiction, you know, in the eighties and nineties, you know, took on a lot more and really after world war two, but I think the height of it was probably in that, you know, that, that time period, but it's, you know, it takes on this weird experimental quality, um, like things like, you know, not telling plots in chronological order or, you know, telling 50 years over five pages and, you know, a very small period of time over a hundred pages. Right. You know, it's like, um, you know, that, and, and, and telling the whole plot line first and then focusing on the details, all these little sort of tricks of the narration that he does. But Vonnegut tends to do them in a um, a lot of writers that do that kind of stuff can be so complex that they become, you know, hard to read for the general reader. And I think Vonnegut, you know, I mean, I did have to go to the dictionary a handful of times throughout this book. But for the most part, Vonnegut's a reader that you can read pretty easily. Anybody can pick up one of his yeah. books and get when, into when it. Say it's short sentences, short words, usually. Yeah. Right. When I say it's a lot, there's a lot of mis I wouldn't call it misdirection, but just the shifting, you know, uh, landscapes of the of the story is difficult for some people but i think that like like you're talking about the ease the the simplicity of the of the writing allows for i think the the more human story to kind of surface you know and i Um, think i think um i think a lot of the you know a lot of things that are popular um on netflix nowadays really owe their lineage to vonnegut writers like him you know i mean like think like a show like uh like stranger about the wanderer Westworld. yeah or you know a lot of those sort of you know weird you know uh weird sort of fantastical sort of you know elements um that have i mean a lot of those shows are kind of come out i mean they're it's a different era in 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 art now than than the postmodern era but i think you can see where where what's popular now kind of came out of writers like him kind of shifting things up because before that it was really a lot of domestic realism a lot of sort of slow moving character stuff and um uh, well you know science fiction is not my groove or whatever but but i did you know i did reach a point where it kind of caught my second win i guess maybe you know maybe 100 pages into this where it really started to to come together and i could see the 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 human uh there's like that statement the statement of the, the novel obviously yeah the thesis you know, kind of. the, the the idea of uh undeserved wealth and the assumptions and the abuse of power mm-hmm. um the yeah. the things that were very uh specific to to people of the you know the era of the 60s vietnam and um early 70s things that people were railing against those are things that Vonnegut seems to kind of stand for to me yeah I think well, I think he, you know, he was he was, you know, after after his experiences World War Two, he was pretty fervently anti war. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably a big influence on a lot of the people that read him a lot in the sixties. Um and he and he, and I think he like I said earlier, he he sort of delves into a lot of this existentialist sort of fly. I mean, I think that's the you know, it's hard it's hard to say. You know, America's one of those places, right? right? We we tend to have our of the Western sort of nations, right? We're probably the least secularized. We still have a pretty large evangelical yeah. movement. Um, but, you know, I mean, like anywhere else, we've sec- secularized a lot more than we were certainly at the founding of the country, right? And so, right. Um, 
And so I think the 60s, a lot of that period, and existentialists were a big part of that process. I mean, that these guys that were sort of, you know, admitted atheists and sort of didn't see any meaning in life and um, talked about sort of absurdly creating your own destiny and that sort of thing. I think, you know, that that was big in the 60s. And, and I think that he mm-hmm. sort of embodies both those sort of that countercultural trend and sort of like that sort of, I would call it kind of like an optimistic nihilism, right? Like sort of, yeah. you know, if, exactly. you know, it's not... It's not nihilism in the sense of like, you know, fuck it all because there's no meaning. It's, a, you know, no, love each other because there's no meaning and it's what better could you do? It makes people happy. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that that's sort of where he where he resonates with, with people. And I and I think, you know, a lot of his the the words he uses to describe the different types of people he invents in the different planets and all that, they tend to be fun. You know, he's he's yeah. got a whimsy to his style that, you know, it's, yeah, he's definitely yeah. Got a sense yeah of humor. there's definitely a sense of humor. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. I got some interesting little review okay. reception things here to read. Um, it says, okay. Ar- artistically, though, player piano is apprentice work. Clun- clunky, clumsy, overstuffed. Turn the page to the Sirens of Titan, 1959, however, and it's all there, all at once. Kurt Vonnegut has become Kurt Vonnegut. The spareness hits you first. The first page contains 14 paragraphs, none of them longer than two sentences, some of them as short as five words. It's like he's placing pieces on a game board. So and so and so. The story moves from one intensely spotlit moment to the next one, one idea to the next without delay or filter. The prose is equally efficient with a scalding, syncopated wit. I told her that you and she were to be married on Mars, he shrugged. Not married exactly, he said, but bred by the Martians, like farm animals. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, there's another one, uh, Floyd C. Gale of Galaxy Science Fiction rated it four and a half stars out of five, stating that the plot is tangled, intricate, and tortuous, but the book, though exasperating, is a joy of inventiveness. And it was a finalist for the Hugo Award in 1960. Yeah, I think also, I mean, I think we should, you know, I I think as a genre is um, it's hard, it's hard to ever generalize in this way because there's obviously exceptions to the rule. But I think because science fiction is so often oriented in the future and often oriented in sort of a different future than the one we currently have, it it tends to have a sort of left political bent to it. Um, That doesn't always hold true because you have like a guy like Orson Scott Card who wrote Ender's Game who's you know, far, far right wing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, in general, um, like Philip K. Dick was a pretty big leftist. A lot of the, the big yeah. science fiction writers yeah. were, 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 were left wing political thinkers. And I, and I think that that's, you know, you know, um, talking about spy want, novels and stuff like that, that are more right. Well, if you want, if you want to manifest the future, right, you have to think about what's a plausible <laughs> way we might get there. Right. Or, mm-hmm. or if you want to manifest the future to warn people, if we keep going in this direction, I mean, like, you know, what, like, you know, and a certain uh, amount of self-flogging. George Orwell, right? For women my age and younger, at least, I mean, yeah. I have to say that um, the the left, it, you think of the left as less misogynistic, at least me. Yeah, Although I, I, my dad was very liberal and pro-woman. So, yeah, you know. And I think that's, you know, I think that... Um, yeah, I think that both the the misogyny and the sort of the way he deals with the sort of native people in this book is is it, you know yeah. that would that would probably not be done nowadays with or it would not get published now. And those sections of the book would have to be rewritten. I mean, I've actually worked for a small press and read stories yeah. and often have to make comments about uh, uh, those elements in a story uh, if if 
the press is thinking about accepting it for publication, right? So, right, right. Um, uh, but yeah, but I mean, I think that, you know, I, I mean, the 60s, I mean, that's a big critique of the 60s in general for all the sort of yeah. anti and all that, 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 you know, a lot of the rock bands, you know, a lot of the artists of the 60s who were you know, very anti-war, very, you know. Uh, well, how old was he when he wrote this? Because we're also womanizing pigs. He's he's, yeah, exactly, 60s, yeah. he's probably he's probably at the age of uh, uh, you know the parents of the sixties. You know he's probably he was. Uh, let's see, this was World written in fifty nine. My grandfather. Well, Vonnegut was born in nineteen twenty two, so he'd have been thirty seven. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Nineteen. Okay. My uncle went to World War Two. My uncle George. Yeah. Yeah. He was in World War Two. My dad was in Korea. But George uh -huh. was like 19 at the end of the war. Well, yeah. Vonnegut was 37 when he wrote yeah. this book in 59, and he was closer mm -hmm. to 50, you know, yeah. late 60s, you know, or 40-something, yeah. 48. Yeah. yeah. But okay. what was he, uh, probably 20 when he was in Dresden getting bombed? Yeah. Probably. That was about the average age, 18 to 20. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I, I forgot think? to mention, and I meant to make you, make you guys listen beforehand, um, Alf Stewart, the guy that sings uh, Time Passages and Ear of the Cat, mm -hmm. has a song, uh, The Sirens of Titan, or just Sirens of Titan. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. We played it. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Two things. Okay. First of all, uh, it is Indiana Avenue in Indianapolis. Okay. So, Illinois, or uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Indianapolis. Um, okay. Indiana. So, that's where the museum is. I don't know. He was talking oh, oh, Chicago oh. a lot, but I don't think those two things were together. Well, he's probably one of these wealthy the guys that, you know, talking about got lucky black. in life. He doesn't know where he's at. He's flying around. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> now, the second thing. The Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library began participating in Banned Books Week in 2011 when Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, and a book called 20 Boys Summer were banned from a rural Missouri school. KVML shipped in celebration of band of being banned um, 75 copies of Vonnegut's book to students who requested them at the school from which they were banned. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I wonder what the okay. rationale also, for banning Slaughterhouse Five was. Who knows? They they ban uh uh, uh whatchamacallit? Uh, trigger finger. Uh what's his name? Huh? Oh, Harry Potter. No, oh. well, yeah, because Satanism. Harry Potter. Harry, Harry but, Potter. But uh, no, uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, apparently. Um, James Bond. Uh, Wizard of Oz promotes drug use. Um, well, that's and uh, that's what was the yeah. what was the other one um, that that because of Satan, uh, like Harry All Potter, witchcraft is Satanism. Yeah. It's against the Bible. Um, there's a bunch of oh Tom Sawyer is banned because it promotes slavery. And yeah, and, according well, to the people who are banning of, it. Speaking of Harry Potter, right? That's another author who's you know I mean, J.K. Rowling when she so first released that was like sort of trans now for applauded for making Dumbledore gay and you know sort of talking about it that way and then you know has gotten into this anti-trans you know rabbit hole and is you know now yep. uh, pretty hardly notorious turf. Uh, I think that happened to a lot of authors of sort of, you know, I mean, in, in literature programs, right, there's a big emphasis on trying to read, um, read more, you know, women of color, read more, you know, people from other countries, read, read more things in translation, because, you know, for, for years and years, English was just taught of as like these 
dead white guys who had a lot of these misogynistic yeah. racist sort of undercurrents to their stories and and i don't think all those stories are without merit i think a lot of <clears throat> excuse me i think a lot of the ideas vonnegut gets at here um are interesting ideas but that that element is still in there it's, it's still, you don't yeah, ignore it well, and, and this conversation made me dislike it less yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think, but yeah, I think that the, yeah, I think that there's, um, and, and so I think that those kinds of things are always sort of, you know, art is a, art is a snapshot of a moment in time, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies in like literature departments. There's a famous. It's, it's a famous, sticky wicket. Like what, what is going to be allowed to, you know, that's allowed for uh, the passage of time. And this there's is. A, there's uh, a famous theory by this guy named Roland Bart. It's called the death of the author. And, and he sort of theorized that authors are more conduits than they are you know anything else uh almost like the trimalfadorian here right like they're channeling the, the the culture and sort of getting caught up in the zeitgeist and then the zeitgeist has as much responsibility for writing a story as the writer themselves does right so that they're yeah. a product of all the things they're encountering all their ideas and so roland bart took it to the extreme of saying there really is no author that the culture is the author but um, but I mean, I think, I think that I, w I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that, you know, I think that he's got a point there that, you know, um, you know, whatever, I mean, this is, this is why you, you have all these generational battles, right? Because, you know, things change and young people are brought up in a different way and you have these sort of, you know, uh, um, older generation is either, you know, either adapts or, or kind of has to feel like they've fallen out of touch in some sort of way. Right. And so, you get, you know, mm -hmm. things that things that older generations were not worried about as social issues that weren't even on their radar now on their radar because younger people, you know, find them. So, you know, I mean, I think, you yeah, know, it's, it's as, going to as be a circular. Yeah, 1959, this is before the civil rights. Yeah, even. I mean, as as trans rights continue to evolve, it's interesting to think back and like, you know, like Lou Reed is one of my favorite musicians. Right. But like like a song like Walk, Walk on the on Wild, Wild Side, Side or like. Uh, or uh, the Kinks, Lola, right? Like, mm -hmm. how would those songs be viewed in sort of, you know, right? Fr the framework now politically about, you know, trans trans rights, right? Um, uh, I, I think, think they're anti-trans either one. No, I don't think they. I don't think either of those songs are. I just think the way in which they talk about those subjects and deal with them is different because the language has evolved, right? And so, uh, and so, I think that those ashes episode I'm doing right now, Aaron. It's like that when yeah. I'm going through that, and I'm like, wow, this is pretty. You know, and this is pretty, pretty edgy. You know, this is yeah. like uh, what, like trans rights or no, no oh. racial oh, angle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Were just they were pretty, and then well, yeah, you and I, we were, you know, and Lisa, we were kind of talking about it. I mean, there was one black character, and then he's gone. Yeah, yeah, but like if you were in a literature department reading Vonnegut, you would you would be reading it, you know, especially in like a graduate level class, right? You'd be reading it alongside of like you know, yeah histories yeah. of the time period it was written in and uh and what you know whatever existentialist philosophies borrowed from you might go back and but read what the, brought him to this he idea he made the black man one of the only people that did have free will on mars yeah and i think that the biblical texts right that that are in that book i mean i think you know um you know again for better and for worse i think there there are definitely things in christianity that are that are worth thinking about and keeping there so there are also a lot of really patriarchal really crappy yeah. Vonnegut was a big fan of the sermon on the mount yeah he's, he's, an, um, he's an atheist but he he says um he's all in on everything that that's said in the sermon on the mount yeah I, I so i think i think um i thought the genesis part of this was really interesting like the gambling on the stock market that was hilarious the, the letters of genesis i thought was a was an interesting 
uh, I liked that part of the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think so. I think when you read Vonnegut, all that elements are in there. And then also, but also like, you know, as he's saying, right, as he sort of seems to be pointing to this sort of um, undue influence that Christianity has on the culture and, and the ramifications mm -hmm. of that, he's also a product of that, right? I mean, that's probably where a lot of those, you know, misogynistic ideas come from growing up in America, yeah. which is so heavily 1950s influenced by, America is where by he is, yeah. values, right? So, um, and so I think those things are all, uh, you, you know, I, th I think that when you're, when you're, my tendency, I mean, I guess as, as, a, as a literary critic, not, not everybody has this one. I mean, I think a lot of, uh, I guess probably because I got trained to do this, but, you know, um, a lot of people, they read their, they read their thing. And if it's their favorite book, it's their favorite book. And any, any harsh criticism whatsoever is then, you know, uh, you know, needs to flatly be defended or whatever. And I don't, I don't tend to read like that. I tend to try to read like, you know, that, you know, the imperfections are part of what makes art art. Right. And that, you know, and also, you know, when you're reading yeah. stuff like that and going back in time, it's, it, it gives you a snapshot into what the world was like, both in its beauty and its ugliness, right? And so you get to see, oh, wow, these are some really progressive ideas here. And these are some really regressive ideas right yeah. here. And, and well, imagine if you were an archaeologist and you came across a, a, a tablet, you know, it's like, like the, um, what's the one, something with cuneiform or whatever, and you decoded yeah. it. And what if you rejected it because it, it, uh, it wasn't some kind of you appreciate yeah, some sort of political or, or probably selling slaves and women for goats or something. Yeah, like oh, we can't we can't accept this knowledge. You know, I mean, and then that's a revisionist history. Absolutely I hate absurd. revisionist it's, history. We're not. It, we're not. Uh, uh, and as the Rumford as the Rumford character is is constantly filling people's heads up with you know ideas and ideologies and that sort of thing to sort of you know have them fight against each other this war between mars and earth right uh right. you know that's i mean i think that's essentially what you know what why do all these things like racism and misogyny and, and such and such exist it's because you know there's always a few people at the top taking everything for themselves and if people were to figure that out they might you know have some interest in aligning together to take those people out of power but mm. if you blame it on the refugee or you blame it on the woman or you blame it on you know Black well, person, you blame it on this person, right? You keep well, people fighting against each well, other. Migrant train, yeah. It's yeah. kind of like the one percent isn't really thinking properly because um, if enough people become disenfranchised, the one percent's going down. Yeah, I mean, I think I think like the you know the sort of. I mean, I'm Elon, not going to get involved. Going like, back, yeah, going back to Elon Musk, which I think like so much of that came across to me in the beginning of that book, just because I was thinking about. Elon Musk's on SpaceX and you know it's like all those different things but you know it's like he sort of blows a hole in the sort of idea of like meritocracy in America right? like you know yeah. you know like this idea that rich people are rich because they had this great you know stroke of ingenuity it's it really is a lot more so luck than anything else I think is why it yeah. points out luck and graft of birth and, and he doesn't luck seem and like graft and blood diamonds yeah, he doesn't seem well, like the most competent guy that's ever, you know, for being the wealthiest man. And, you know, I don't know if he still is, but, you know, the, you know, one of the wealthiest men, you mm -hmm. know, it's just, um, and so, yeah, so I think that that's, um, that, that, I, yeah, I think that that stuff, to me, that's what resonates to Vonnegut. To me, I know all those problems are still there with the, with the massage and all that, but like, I think that his, he really had a, a sense to sort of class and, uh, and, and then how, how that class affects how much power we have. And he didn't exactly go, he didn't. He offered more critique than he offered solution to any of that. But I think that that's sort of what what he gets at that I that I appreciate about his work. Yeah. All right. Well, I should probably wind down here. Yeah. Very very interesting discussion. Um, 
we uh, we need to get a hard copy of your book. So uh, right, okay. we have every one of them here, but we we've got hard copies of most of the authors. Okay. So we need to go yeah. ahead. Yeah, we can find we'll it. Put Lisa on that to go ahead and go out. To, what is it? Yeah. It's an ad. It's, it's on it's on uh, Madville Publishing. I think it's I think it's Madville Publishing one word dot yeah. But it's on it's on Amazon as well. It's not I mean, it's not as important now because you know, I've I made most of the royalties I was gonna make in the first year and it's more of a okay. royalty thing than anything else. So if you want well, to just Amazon, that's perfectly fine. Oh, we just like that. Yeah. Well in that case, send us a free signed copy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I will do that. I don't have any. I don't. I, I need to order another case. I don't have any. At you the can't moment. keep them already. Well, so many. Yeah. yeah. If, if you <laughs> if you were to do that, we can do yeah. one of two things. We can just send you the money directly. Yeah. Then it's a hundred percent profit. Or yeah, me, or we can make it a charitable donation in your name. Yeah. Let me know. Whatever one you would like. Let me let y'all know when I get a when I get a um. When I get a new one, because um, I like we I do like to have signed copies from our authors. Yeah, for sure. I could I can do that for you. I didn't I didn't even think about that. I guess I'll, I gave y'all a PDF originally. And then we'll yeah. just let us either include an invoice or just you know yeah. uh, or the name of a charity. That's yeah, what. I can, yeah, I can. And and we've had different authors do different things. Yeah, I, I can send y'all yeah. send y'all a signed one. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll okay. Got another for... blurb I'd like to share because we do not want your intellectual property to come to us for free oh yeah that's, for sure that's for sure. not oh, the yeah. goal we want to support yeah we want to support sure. yeah sure. go ahead Aaron. you had something so yeah in a 1979 interview douglas adams discussed vonnegut as an influence on the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy sirens of titan is just yeah sirens of titan is just one of those books you read it through the first time and you think it's very loosely casually written you think the fact that everything suddenly makes such good sense at the end is almost accidental. And then you read it a few more times, simultaneously finding out more about writing yourself, and you realize what an absolute tour de force it was, making t making something as beautifully honed as that appear to uh, the, the, the making something as beautifully honed as that appear so casual. Uh, I spit it out at the end, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. So I think it is fine. <laughs> Y'all do these um is this this book series one that y'all are sort of keeping up with now or doing doing several book book episodes or uh well, we, yeah. we call it between the, the covers okay. um we what we're trying to do i i did kind of lose hope because i was hoping for more interaction like yeah. you know um i picked a book that wasn't really something that by ann mccaffrey uh yeah. the thing that wasn't really something that the other people kind of showed up for that they didn't, that wasn't something they would yeah. usually read. And then, okay. um, you know, that kind of thing. But the idea behind between the covers is that we'll be challenged by the books. Like I was challenged to read Sirens of Titan. Well, I, I, yeah, I have, I have, I had just had one in mind just off the top of my head. as I was Great. Um, uh, there's this book called Tender is the Flesh by this lady from Argentina named Augustine Basterica. It's written in translation, but it's a, uh, it's about a, a, a future in which a pandemic virus um, makes all the animal meat unfit to be eaten by humans. And so they start uh, harvesting a different breed of human that's never taught any language or anything and it's sort of bred like cattle so that they can eat human meat and it's it's pretty oh, disturbing no. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty disturbing fun book uh, i read it in my book club a few years ago but i 
I think it could make for some interesting podcast discussions. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Clubs. So I can and that's the whole stuff. idea. We want someone who's willing to read. We've we've had a couple people who came on and they wanted to read their book. Yeah. And they're yeah. not showing up for any other book. Yeah, yeah. So well, yeah, people, yeah. Have, people have like, stuff then going you're on. Not in the club. Be reading a book. Yeah. Right. No, but none. Are you reading well, other stuff? Not a too. single one. My sister Terry explained it to us. She was like, uh -huh. "Don't you know? They're in it to read the book. They're not in it to it to to taste. Uh, you know, a sampling. You know, yeah, one of my, like you join a book club. But, yeah, know. she wants us to pick a genre and stay there. I said, well, not respect, like, no. it's not really a book club. No, I mean, we call it a book club, so. but really, uh, we're going out of our comfort zone. Like right, I'm reading right. Vonnegut, I would never mm -hmm. read this. I would never read. Uh, you never would have read Acheron. Never would have read Acheron. You probably wouldn't have read The Ship Who Sang. Yeah. Tender is the flesh. You know, I, I audiobook the, the Ship Who Sang for him. Tender is the flesh is one of those books that I'm not going to guarantee you'll you'll like. You in fact might really not like it, but it's I think well, it's I didn't like this one. Challenging. <laughs> well. It's just, it's just, it's got some like some real cannibalism stuff that's like pretty out there, and, uh, yeah. disturbing. Uh, but, but it's, but I'm going to pretend it's fiction. I think it's a book that's pretty politically relevant uh, to the world. I mean, it's because it does this very extreme thing with the point of making some other points, which I'm not going to go into until I'll have a chance to read it. But, you know, I think yeah. it's, I think it's got a lot of real relevance to the, the culture and the times. And it's also, Pretty disturbing. It's a it's a, a good read. It's it's easy to read. It, it's pretty fast moving. Uh, it'll it'll grip you. Last two people mm -hmm. I suggested to both read it in the course of a day and a half, and, and yeah. then and then also grabbed me and were like, "Fuck you uh, for making me read." That. It was also <laughs> very, you know I'm, I'm already vegan, so I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and the the writer is a, it's going to reinforce that. The writer I think. of the book is is either vegan or vegetarian, so it has you know. Yeah. It has those undercurrents, but it has those political not, connotations. That's not really the point of the book. The point of the book is more like it's it has a lot of meta commentary on like how do we you talk about how do mm. we talk about humanity? How do we de dehumanize people? Uh, so you know, I think it would make for an interesting yeah. podcast episode. So I'll send you all a link mm. to that, you know, next day or two. If and cool. you know, if you want to set up something, we could we could do another one. So I, right. I always like talking Sounds about good. books and music. That's my so that's wheelhouse <laughs> you know that's out there see big fan yeah and get um judgment day and other mm -hmm. white lies by mike hilbig yeah and uh really enjoy having you on mike so yeah, yeah. it's good to see y'all again and uh and yeah i'll talk yeah. to y'all soon good to so, see you cheers yeah have a good see one you guys too oh, so, twitter yeah uh-huh pod instagram yeah uh-huh pod facebook yeah uh-huh pod website so let us know hit us back have a great week Bye.